Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me today, one medical student and one pre-med student. We're going to try something, uh, I think we've done this once before with a pre-med student, so you're not the first. I think Eli has done a podcast with us and is probably working on getting another one ready. So, uh, still breaking kind of new ground. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself, Chloe? Uh, my name's Chloe and I am a pre-med student just shadowing Dr. Roundy here at the Utah State Hospital. Yeah, and I'm applying to start in fall of 2023. Good to uh, have you here. Thanks. And Megan, would you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Megan. I'm a medical student in my third year doing my psychiatry rotation. Good to have you both here. Uh, topic today is a topic I picked. Quite often I ask the students to pick a topic and then we focus on that topic. I picked this topic because I think it's really fascinating. I'm uh, looking at how we might be able to use some of the um, personalized medicine tools that are starting to emerge, largely the genetic testing to see if there's a way that I might be able to improve the quality of care for my patients here at the state hospital that have schizophrenia. And a significant portion of that test is related to CYP450 enzymes. So I wanted to do a deep dive into CYP450 enzymes. What do we know? What do we not know? And kind of see where that took us. Now, Megan, I think you uh, focused on, actually before we talk about kind of the high yield stuff, and we, I think this will be a fairly high yield topic at the beginning. Um, do you want to talk to us just a little bit about the differences between CYP um, inhibitors, CYP inducers, and maybe even before that, tell us what CYP enzymes do. Yeah, CYP enzymes are like a super family of enzymes that we know metabolize drugs in the liver. And um, these drugs, th these enzymes, um, cause some drug-drug interactions that are very important to know. So uh, those drug-drug interactions I think we're going to get to in just a moment. How do CYP inhibitors affect the concentration of other drugs? CYP inhibitors usually increase the other drugs because they sit on the enzyme and they inhibit the enzyme. And then CYP inducers are a little bit different. Yeah, it's not like they talk the other molecules into sitting on the enzyme space, right? They do something else, I think. Yeah, CYP inducers go and sit on promoters or other um, enzymes on the DNA, and they increase transcription and make more enzymes. So with that in our mind, just a little bit, we're going to talk about some key aspects of drug-drug interactions based on CYP enzymes. Uh, let's start with, um, well, what do you want to start with? How about antidepressants? All right, tell us a little bit about antidepressants that we need to know about. Okay, so the main antidepressants that CYP affects are the SSRIs, the tricyclic antidepressants, and an SNRI. Um, the main SSRIs are fluvoxamine, which is a CYPA12 inhibitor, citalopram, which is also a CYPA12 inhibitor, and um, the TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants, are amitriptyline 
Imipramine and doxepine, they're all substrates. All right. So I, I want to back up. I think you said A12, but I think you meant 1A2. 1A2. You're not at all nervous, are you? I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I do the same thing when I get nervous. Um, now, you have duloxetine here listed as a 1A2 substrate. I thought duloxetine was a 2D6, but um, if it, we'll just kind of leave that off to the side. So uh, the substrates are medications that would be affected by other molecules that might inhibit uh, or get in the way. It's my understanding that uh, Prozac and Paxil, because they are 2D6 uh, substrates, can also sometimes uh, compete for that enzyme spot and, and it, at times may be in poor metabolizers, and we'll talk about those in just a moment, may at times affect the blood levels in poor metabolizers. But I think that's relatively uncommon. Does that, is that consistent with what you read or not at all what you read anything about? That's consistent with what I read. Okay. Uh, tell me about carbamazepine. Um, carbamazepine is a CYPA12 in inducer. I think it also, does it also induce uh, 3A4? I think it probably does. And then maybe 2D6, but I'm not as sure about that. Now, some other medications that often end up uh, being talked about are things like uh, propranolol, warfarin, theophylline, right? And uh, we have to be careful when these medications are used because they are either substrates or uh, inhibitors or something else, right? We have to just be very, very careful about these. There are also a few foods that can sometimes affect CYP450 enzymes. What are those foods? So grapefruit juice is a very large one. Um, it's a CYP450 inhibitor. Uh, caffeine is a CYP inhibitor, and melatonin is also a CYP inhibitor. Yeah. There, it seems like the most data we have, and, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, a lot of this goes back to something called AmpliChip, which I think uh, near, I, I want to say about 2012, this AmpliChip, A-M-P-L-I-C-H-I-P, was uh, FDA approved to help um, facilitate or guide treatment um, with medications. And I think the AmpliChip, one of the things it focused on was identifying or understanding the differences in 2D6 metabolism. Now, 2D6 is uh, considered to be highly pleiotropic, so I think there's a lot of poly polymorphisms with 2D6. And as a result, out of the 100 or 150 or whatever it is, polymorphisms of uh, 2D6, they kind of have it broken down into four categories. Tell me about those four categories. Okay, so do you mean about the normal metabolizers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, alleles um, cause people to be normal, poor, or extensive metabolizers. There's this wild type allele, and if someone has two wild type alleles, they're a normal metabolizer. Mm -hmm. If they're, um, they have one wild type allele, they have a reduced enzyme activity, and people who are poor metabolizers don't have any wild type alleles. And then uh, I noticed this was kind of interesting to me. There's a small portion of the population that are ultra metabolizers. And I don't understand this, but apparently they have more than two wild type alleles. Did you ever read anything that explained how people would have more than the two wild type alleles? 
I never saw anything along those lines. Don't know if you did. I didn't, but it would be interesting to learn. <laughs> yeah, I thought that would be interesting as well. Uh, smoking affects um, metabolism of various molecules. I think it's a polycyclic, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, and those are particularly um, likely to induce 1A2, if I remember correctly. Um, based on kind of that introduction, you have a couple of STEM questions, or I, principles that are tested on the, on the shelf exam. Um, I've added one to this, so I'll take the last one. Do you want to start with the first question that you put together? Okay, yeah. So we have this patient who's a 40-year-old male. He's currently taking fluoxetine and just started imipramine this last week. He has been shouting out the walls, has a heart rate in the 120s, low respirations, and high blood pressure. He has red, dry skin, and dilated pupils. And in the office, he starts convulsing in front of you. I, I would be uh, kind of freaking out if this were to happen to me. This would be a bad day. <laughs> yes. And uh, the first time I read this case report, I thought, oh, this is serotonin syndrome. But the scenario really isn't correct for that, and you have the explanation why. Do you want to go ahead and explain this one? Yeah, this patient is going through tricyclic antidepressant poisoning um, because it was precipitated by the SSRI. Um, the fluoxetine that he was taking is an inhibitor, which delayed the tricyclic antidepressant excretion from the body. Um, there's one mnemonic that is kind of cool that we can use to remember the um, toxicity of tricyclic antidepressants, and it's the three C's, coma, convulsions, and cardiac toxicity. Yeah, when I look this up, so there's, um, through PubMed, there are stat pearls, and you can read some very brief descriptions of the various conditions, so I went back and reread the difference between TCA poisoning and serotonin syndrome and that uh, those two issues, the convulsions is probably the big one, and cardiac toxicity is one of the things you need to remember in, immediately as you start management of the condition, right? So convulsions is a key part of that. Now in the stem you also had uh, red as a beet, dry as a bone, right? Um, so you, you had some of those uh, mnemonics for uh, anticholinergic uh, toxicity as well, right? So that's part of what the situation we're seeing there. Uh, great. Let's go ahead and skip to the next case that you put together, um, a patient with uh, a seizure disorder. Yeah. So this next patient has a seizure, seizure disorder that is currently well controlled with phenytoin. Um, the question is, what happens if he is given fluconazole to treat his, her vaginal candidiasis. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say that you're going to, uh, I'm not sure. I had mixed thoughts on this one. We had to look this up a little bit, didn't we? Yeah. yeah so what's the immediate effect of this one? Um, immediately, uh, fluconazole will inhibit the metabolism of the phenytoin. And the reason for that, based on my understanding, is this is the competitive inhibition. And yet, the azoles are well known for induction. 
of uh, 3A4, is that right? It's 3A4 for the Azoles? Yes. Yeah, okay. So what I don't know, and I, I've had a tough time uh, finding good answers to this, if something is already induced, let's say that somebody is already smoking, and then they start a medication like carbamazepine, which I believe also induces 1A2 and 3A4, do you have an increase in the induction, or is there kind of a maximum induction? Do you know the answer to that? Because I've never found a good answer. I don't know. I was hoping you would. I, I didn't read anything anywhere that would give us a clue on that, though. Um, so watch for questions about azoles, and be aware that they could be both inducing agents over time and initially competitive agents that might block substrate binding. Okay. Uh, you have a third question here. I have it listed as number two, but I know it's the third question. Carbamazepine. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So a man takes carbamazepine for a seizure disorder. He comes in with muscle weakness, patchy areas of hair loss on his scalp, numbness around his mouth, tingling in his hands and feet, tapping his right cheek causes contraction of the muscles at the corner of his mouth, nose and eye on the right side. By the way, what's the name of that sign? I'm cheating because I'm reading it right here, by the way. <laughs> Is that Chopstock sign? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And these are all symptoms or signs of hypocalcemia. How does this, how does this happen with carbamazepine? Yeah, so carbamazepine is a CYP inducer, and it increases the rate of vitamin D catabolism. Um, parathyroid and calcium are affected downstream by these uh, changes. I think this is so fascinating. So um, I had significant doubts about this case scenario, right? How long did you watch me Google Scholar PubMed and try and find specific examples of hypocalcemia associated with carbamazepine? I think quite a while, right? Yeah. I don't know that we found uh, a lot on there, but it does seem to be something that shows up, hypocalcemia associated with, with carbamazepine use. And I thought it was incredibly fascinating that, that we would see this. I, I just thought it was really remarkable. Uh, carb, carb is an interesting drug. There were a lot of early studies looking at um, a lot of the antiepileptics and how they would very rapidly cause induction. They could see increases in the ribosomes as they were looking at the cells. And uh, even a study as recently as 2002 showed that by day 14, even, even though there's probably early onset of these uh, induction of the ribosomes on the, on the Golgi bodies, and I think we're going to get into that more in a little bit probably, um, it, it's, it, that escalation of metabolism really doesn't happen until day 14. So. Uh, a term that I think is probably worth pointing out is autoinduction here. Autoinduction is when a, a molecule causes uh, transcription of the DNA and so forth in a manner that those ribosomes numbers are increased. There are more of the uh, enzymes, the, the P450 enzymes on those ribosomes, uh, a massive increase in the ability of the liver to uh, detoxify xenobiotic uh, xeno. Xenobiotics, is that the word they use for it? Yeah, xenobiotics, and allow those to be excreted. So autoinduction in this case is carbamazepine, ultimately leading to less effectiveness. Now what's really fascinating by this is that we, um, at least initially in the, the 
medical school, what I learned was you check a medication for its half-life for steady state after, what, five to seven half-lifes, right? Does that sound right? If I Do I still remember that correctly? Megan, you're nodding yes. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but in this case, you'd really need to be checking maybe by uh, day 21 when you've had uh, when you've hit the maximal amount of uh, auto-induction and then you have a week at the auto-induction rate to kind of get a steady state going. So uh, kind of some things that become interesting to talk about. All right, now I've got a case presentation um, that I'm going to give to you guys. A patient taking codeine for pain in the hospital uh, complains that he is not getting pain relief. He has a history of depression and his pain is attributed to both a psychogenic reaction and drug-seeking behaviors. Even though the patient doesn't have a history of uh, substance misuse, he continues to complain about not getting any pain relief. Uh, so what is this issue? This is uh, an issue that we're going to talk about a little bit more in a few minutes as we talk about the discovery of cytochrome P450 enzymes where codeine is actually a prodrug, meaning that it needs to be cleaved uh, proteolytically in the body before it becomes, do you know what the answer to this one is? Activated. Activated. And what drug does it become once it's activated? Morphine. Yeah. So this person doesn't have a cough, right? Codeine's suppressing the cough that this patient may have, but he's not getting really the same amount of uh, pain relief from codeine that he would give from other medications. So uh, in this case, uh, this is a type of question that's asked quite often on our psych shelf exam. Uh, we had a yearly exam in our psychiatry residency, and this was the kind of question that was asked on that one. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, jump to takeaways on this. And uh, Megan, what's your takeaway on drug-drug interactions that are high yield for the shelf exam? I would say that the main takeaway is to get a good history of the medicines that your patient takes, and to keep in mind their drug-drug interactions and also see the patient as an individual who has individual metabolisms. I like that. Now, at one point you had on there also get genetic testing to personalized medicine. I said, are you sure about that? And I took it off. But then you did some additional reading, I think. Uh, we found one article that was done by one of the Canadian boards, I think. Um, tell me what you read since we change this around that would suggest either that personalized medicine using genetic testing panels is helpful or not helpful? Well, um, it's certainly doable. They have the chemistry and the knowledge to be able to do it, but it's very expensive and sometimes it doesn't pan out the way that the chemistry is um, showing it might because people's metabolisms have much more to do with just their genes. It, it seems like we have a partial picture but not a complete picture. I think that's what you're saying. I think uh, the, the way I read the CAT, CATB study, CADTH, CADTH, um, was that there were some mixed reports so far about the value of using uh, these tools, at least in treatment of things like depression or schizophrenia. Um, I think there might be places uh, where this is being studied a little bit more in depth with regards to cancer genetics and how the testing, at least of the cancer tumor genetics, probably 
means a great deal. I think we are hearing that, right? That's just like we all know that now, right? Um, but I don't, I don't know that we have all the data we want with this and we might be going the right direction with it. So um, I called and looked at what it costs to do the panel. We have a panel that we do through International I'm sorry, Intermountain Healthcare, and that panel costs, I believe, $350. And I think that's a lot less than the panel cost when we were looking at, at what it cost a few years ago. So I think the prices have come down fairly dramatically. And a lot of the resistance, I think, to these panels originally was it's not clear that they change the outcomes for the patients and the cost is incredibly high. And those things might be changing as we're adding more genes to the panels and as the cost comes down. So we'll kind of see where that goes. Um, however, I don't think the data is compelling because sensitivity and specificity aren't high enough yet to give us good guidance, right? It's still kind of, it feels like with the sensitivity and specificity of the, of the test, we're still kind of flipping a coin after we use them. And I don't know if that's really where we want to be. All right, so let's uh, take a break from kind of the the higher yield uh, shelf exam information. And let's jump to the history of, of these molecules. Uh, Chloe, do you want to take this away and tell me what you learned about the history yeah, of, of sure. these molecules? Now, just, just to preface this, you're a biochemistry major. Um, it was like, it's called biomedical science, but it's like a mix of bio and chem. So, right. yeah, but it's essentially like human it's, bio mixed with biochem. So, all right, so it's yeah. human biochem and biochem, yeah, just general much. biochem. Mm -hmm. So okay, so so when you read through the redox reaction uh, with NADPH mm -hmm. giving electrons to and all that stuff, that mm -hmm. that was all cake for you. Uh, I wouldn't say cake, but familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at it and kind of glazed over. Yeah. I have to admit, it's. I uh, like that stuff, but yeah, it was a little like whoa. So. <laughs> All right, so talk to me about the how we identified um, what we now call CYP450 enzymes. Walk me through that. Yeah, so there were many discoveries um, and studies from the 40s and 50s that kind of created a foundation in which we were able to discover P450. Um, most notably was one of uh, the discovery of oxygenases by... Um, Hayashi? Hi, yeah, I, um, I read that a couple and, times. And Mason. Um, and that was basically that oxygen could be added to organic molecules. Um, and that kind of helps with the hydrox hydroxination that we see in this reaction. Um, so basically how it was discovered though was that um, in 1955, Martin Klingenberg observed that the absorbance band at 450 nanometers when rat liver was treated with sodium <laughs> dithionate when it was gassed with carbon monoxide. So there was a visible band at um, 450. So that's kind of what led to the name. So, so I think it absorbed the 450 yeah, sorry, band. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. It was the absorbance band at 450. Um, and so it was named pigment 450 or P450. Um, I love that name. I always thought that, you know, it's like that P has to be really meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... And it required the rapid and sensitive spectrophotometric techniques um, to study like the turbid suspension of cells and cell membranes, which was part of the Britain chance. Yeah, so I'm going to jump in right there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that are really fascinating to me. This this topic took me deep into the weeds. Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, down the rabbit hole is a phrase that one time we had to ban because we used it so often <laughs> on our podcasts. Um, but but this Britain Chance guy, 
he's centrifuging these cells and then trying to shoot light for through it to see what it might mean, right? Mm-hmm. And and then he has the student Klingenberg, who's looking to see essentially by flooding it with carbon monoxide, he's able to see uh, redox reactions, right? Mm-hmm. He's able to take away some aspect of this and then see what's left, right? Mm-hmm. Any idea why they chose to do that? I never saw an explanation for yeah, how how they. I didn't see. It seemed like it was more of a fascination. Honestly, it's like they were just super interested in it, which makes sense. But I didn't see like an exact reason. Yeah, why did we choose to do yeah. carbon monoxide? I mean, obviously it was to, to try and understand. Um, uh-huh. I think it was probably following up on the work by Hayashi and Mason, right, uh-huh. um, to find this. But I couldn't figure out how they decided to. It, it was really strange. Yeah, to it, yeah, it wasn't super clear. And then... Um, I think Sato and Omura knew that these were heme proteins, mm-hmm. right? And, and you might have more to say about this this discovery of P450. Yeah, so um, what was really interesting to me is that they were able to purify um, the P450, which led to proof that, um, that the different enzymes differ in their physical and enzymatic properties. And then that also allowed us to make specific antibodies for P450s, which helped with additional, like, cloning and Mm -hmm. sequencing, which, um, like, helped us discover the drug interactions and, like, the inducing and inhibiting effects. So I think those were the, like, the biggest things that I took away, but there were also, like, so many smaller experiments that kind of all happened at the same time. Yeah, the 50s and 60s, it was just like... one after another... Very much so. <laughs> so. You and I read two, at least two review mm-hmm. papers that I, maybe even three, that were very well done, I mm-hmm. thought. Very interesting. I think uh, they were done, the Eden, Edenberg? Eden, Estabrook? Estabrook. Yeah. Wow, I wasn't even close. <laughs> Estabrook uh, paper. So uh, Dr. Estabrook was one of the people that was mm-hmm. involved in many of these discoveries and then wrote a summary paper. I think that was 1980. Um, I think the paper that he wrote that we read was 2003, actually, oh, wow. because a... it was like later on, and he was just recalling his experiences by memory. But it seemed that way because yeah. it, because he, the history. I think he even stated it. Yeah, so it's more memory. So, so many of those articles that he cited, he uh-huh. said, "Well, then there's this first study where they did this." Uh-huh. But then, if we went in and looked at it, um, we found articles that predated that that mm-hmm. were already elucidating that pathway. I think there mm-hmm. were so many things happening during this time. Mm-hmm. I, I think this must have been uh, so exciting to be around because yeah. I, I mean, even preparing for this, I started reading about centrifuges. Right, mm-hmm. so they were first developed. I, th- I mean, it depends on where you read. I read a couple of you know intros to books. There's apparently a book on the history of centrifuges, but you have to pay for it to buy the book. I wasn't quite ready to buy a book on centrifuges. Um, the history on Wiki was slightly different, um, but depending on the history you you read, uh, somewhere around uh, let's see, the 1850s, 1860s, somewhere in there, 1880s. Uh, somebody in Germany was advertising centrifuges and somebody in Sweden said, hey, if they can do it in Germany, we can do it better in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And so they made a centrifuge to be able to separate milk. (laughs) Now, I I don't know if this was the driving force behind centrifuges or not. I I looked for a history. It all started with milk. It all started with milk. 
Um, but the next thing I, I, I mean, the, the, the differences in centrifuges are very dramatic. So um, there are low speed centrifuges, middle speed centrifuges, and high speed centrifuges. And just to be able to, um, to get these molecules to be, uh, to, to be able to shoot light through mm -hmm. them. So this, these uh, spectrophotometric tools that they had, even to get to that, I think they had to have um, centrifuges that were spinning at 150,000 RPMs, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and I guess that's not too surprising since I think the centrifuges for uh, the heavy metals required to make nuclear weapons probably yeah. require some pretty hefty <laughs> spinning as well. Mm -hmm. um, so they had to have these very, very fast centrifuges. And then they also had to figure out how to get detergents in there that would kind of wash away the separate parts of the cells without destroying them. Mm -hmm. right? One of the other fascinating uh, pathways I went down was the study of cells, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you read the same article about cells where you go back to somebody like Hook and Lovenhook. And these guys were looking uh, through microscopes that they had created at cells. And then, you know, by 1910, somebody comes along and says, hey, guys, you're destroying the cells when you're uh, <laughs> yeah. fixing them. And what you're looking at is all wrong. So yeah. you have to look at live specimens. And then, of course, that electron microscopy comes along much later. But even the ability to look at the cell, uh, live versus dead, and then using the centri centrifugal techniques, and the detergent techniques, the, these were all scientific advances that had to happen to just be able to look at mm -hmm. uh, ribosomes and then to figure out what exactly the ribosomes were on the Golgi bodies. I think one of the uh, papers we looked at from the 1950s was kind of talking about this is what seems to be called Golgi bodies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. I'm reading mm -hmm. original research that's talking about the cells. What, what else kind of struck you in your review of the history of cytochromes? Um, I think, like you said, just the amount of discoveries that had to be made before we could even know the basics of P450, you know, and just, I, I think you could genuinely feel Esther Brooks, I think that's his name, right? Yeah. Excitement, like mm -hmm. reading the article, like he was so excited that they were making these discoveries, which I thought was awesome. It was just so cool to read that. Um, what also, like, I think we were talking about a little bit before that, like, how different the two history articles we read were and, like, just the foundations of it all. It's like, oh, well, this person did this, this person did this, and it was totally different in the other one. So, yeah. It's interesting yeah. because everybody, I think, talks about Brody. Mm -hmm. Brody was this central character in this, and yet, find, first of all, I couldn't get the original article by Dr. Brody mm -hmm. to be able to look at uh, the work he did. And a lot of the other little pieces that came together, they they weren't Dr. They, they weren't Brody's research, but mm -hmm. he seemed to. I mean, everybody talks about yeah. him as being this really important person, and I I wish I could like maybe I need to find a bio on him or something. Yeah. But I I kind of think this is a guy that uh, somehow helped the field progress. I think Sato was also mentioned yeah. the same way. So a lot of this work was done in Japan. And I think that with Brody, it was it wasn't he in charge of like a group of scientists in like a lab and so i think yeah. that probably a lot of his their contributions were grouped under him perhaps, perhaps but so. yeah. yeah there was a lot on him I'm trying to remember which lab he was at but i think there was one lab one of the other things that struck me was um like i was reading these original research papers and it was interesting because they would say okay so here's what we saw but it was really weird because 
we noticed a whole lot more ribosomes after we did this or after we did that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, oh, well, there's early, I mean, these are scientists that are going, okay, I have this study going on. But I noticed this interesting thing. There's something else happening. And it's that recognition of ribosomes that was one of the pieces that helped uh, grow the understanding of drug-drug interactions. Mm -hmm. And um, they called it, I think at the time, tolerance to medications. Yeah. What, was the, what was the rat study? Um, who, who did that? Remmer. Yeah. Uh, um, so Cato uh, it was in one of the papers we found, and it, it said, hey, we think there's some tolerance to medications issues, and he said, you know, there's this paper by Remmer from 1959. So articles we looked at said, oh, they first recognized yeah. you know, tolerance in like 1967, but no, in 1959, there's this guy named Remmer mm -hmm. who is pre-treating rats with uh, barbiturates, Mm -hmm. barbiturates depending on how you say that <laughs> and he says and they have resistance to, to hexobarbitone well what's the resistance to hexobarbitone well they're giving rats a sleeping pill mm -hmm. and seeing how long it takes for a rat to be knocked out and fall asleep <laughs> yeah. before they um, be to know what's going on and so what they recognized was if you're giving uh, barbiturates to rats then something's happening that the hexobarbitone isn't as effective and so they looked to try and figure out how quickly that happened, and they found that it happens within like 12 to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. so, so again, I've often thought about uh, CYP450 induction as taking about a month, right? It takes about a month to induce DNA, cause mm -hmm. movement of the ribosomes, build the proteins, whatever else. But I think the evidence that we found reading these articles was that it probably is much more, it's happening much more quickly than that, right? Mm -hmm. that it, at least in rats within 12 to 24 hours, and that was not uncommon. One of the other very interesting threads that I came along was like G6PD, right? Uh, so G6PD, we have some treatments for malaria that have emerged and yet all of a sudden they're very dangerous to some mm -hmm. people and it's because it's, uh, it's uh, triggering this, uh, uh, G it's, it's interacting with G6PD in a way that you have hemolysis, if I remember correctly. Am I right with that? I'm checking because you've been to medical school sooner than I have. Does that sound familiar, hemolysis with GC6PD? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's an affirm. I don't know. I'm just saying <laughs> yes. Um, so, so they're looking at that, and then they're also looking at things like fish and birds who are dying with parathion, right? It doesn't happen to everybody, but some birds and some fish are dying with this. And what they're finding is the ideas of prodrugs. So we talked about that with uh, with. Uh, fluoxetine and codeine. Uh, codeine's a prodrug, and in a sense, um, the metabolism of parathion was uh, by specific CYP enzymes that were in the fish and the birds was leading to death of those animals. So, fish and bird deaths, sleeping rats, and uh, many and G6PD and treatment of malaria. All these things start coming together mm -hmm. to create this really great picture. One of the other important drug-drug interactions was noted at later, 1990, I think we've talked about um, CYP enzymes uh, being involved in xenobiotics. Mm -hmm. But one of the other important, um, what I saw was one of the other important aspects of growing an understanding of CYP450 enzymes was the role they had in steroid synthesis, mm -hmm. catabolism, metabolism, both, right? Mm -hmm. And what we found is that uh, by 1990, they were talking about breakthrough cases of pregnancy in patients who had been taking carbamazepine, and it was failure of the oral contraceptives. Now, that's problematic. Um, should I throw you on the... Uh, 
throw you on the spot here, Megan, and ask you uh, the risks associated with carbamazepine and pregnancy. Don't I, you knew this answer yesterday, so I was going to throw it at you. But, <laughs> but uh, neural tube defects, right, is uh, one of the things we worry about quite a bit in pregnancy with carbamazepine. And so with the induction, um, you have not only a molecule that makes your birth control ineffective, it gives you a higher chance of having a fetus or a baby that has uh, neural tube defects, right? So, so problematic, and they were able to start looking at that a little more closely in 1990 on how that might might come about, but they kind of locked that link down too. And that was the same thing with fentanyl, right? Because uh, in that in that paper, it talked about carbamazepine and. Yeah, I don't know if I don't remember if Dilantin has the same problems with neural tube defects because I don't mm -hmm. I don't know that medication as well. Okay. I remember gingival hyperplasia, right? Isn't that the thing you're supposed to remember about Dilantin or phenytoin? I, I should use the generic name. Uh, so, so by 1990, there's 2,000 studies per year. Mm -hmm. By 2020, we now have a naming committee called Farmvar. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how they came up with this. They, that, that committee has a library, a steering committee. Uh, what could possibly go wrong if you have a steering committee, right? Um, and maybe by 2021, the thing that strikes me, 2022, we're in a new, new year now, aren't we? I think one of the things that really strikes me is that the, the polymorphisms associated with the different cytochromes may still change how we understand these, right? Because even uh, one polymorphism in a 2D6 uh, cytochrome can make it inactive, it seems, right? And, and we see that even though there are like hundreds of, ice, of polymorphisms of the 2D6 molecule, maybe not hundreds, but I think over 130, does that sound like the, the that number that somebody remembers? Right. Yeah, so even with that, you can either inactivate it or potentially um, with like 1A2, it looks like maybe the 1F polymorphism is more inducible. So I, so I think even though we get these reports of you know, 1A2, 2D6, high metabolizer, uh, ultra metabolizer, whatever the case may be, I think there's still a lot of information we don't know about the various polymorphisms and what it may mean. I suspect we'll have more information over time. Let's see, what else have we not talked about that we should talk about? Megan, is there anything that we've left uncovered? Not that I can think of. Chloe? There is some more biochem I <laughs> research. Tell us, but, tell us. But I don't have to. No, tell oh, us. Oh, I just thought it was interesting because whenever I um, looked into like the catalytic um, cycle of... P450, it was talking about how there are two phases, how the phase one is either the um, heteroatom oxidation and then the hydroxylation, and then it also does epoxidation. Um, and then the phase two was the conjugation, and I, um, I watched a video about how it could add, like, the, it could add glucuronic acid, which mm -hmm. I kind of thought of that, like, tying it back into, like, bilirubin metabolism and stuff. And so I was just thinking about that, and I was like, oh, I didn't see how those connected. But now that, because, I don't know, I, I really enjoy learning about red blood cell breakdown. Mm -hmm. That's just one of my favorite things. And so, so nerdy and <laughs> dorky. Um, but that's just one of the things I really like learning about. And so it was, like, cool to connect that through the 
glucuronic acid. <laughs> I, I wish. So I thought about adding a camera and making it a like a YouTube video where yeah. the where the three of us could chat with a YouTube video. Uh, yeah. And if we had that, <laughs> you would have seen both Megan and I just laughing as we stared at each other while you were explaining that you uh, love reading about the breakdown of uh, red blood cells. So uh, if I understand correctly, and, and you probably will be able to, to help me mm-hmm. with this, I think we've talked largely about phase one metabolism mm-hmm. and glucuronidation would be phase two metabolism. Mm-hmm. And the idea on glucuronidation is that the molecules um, that have now been modified by the heme-based uh, P450 enzymes mm-hmm. are now able to be um, glucuronidated, which then essentially tags them to be eliminated by yeah, the liver so or it, by the kidneys. Yeah, the kidneys. it increases their solubility, essentially. And so it just makes them more capable of being um, secreted. So. And, and is that through the kidneys or the liver if they're glucuronidated? Uh, I, glucuronidation happens in the liver and then and they're moved to the kidneys. And the kidneys where it actually gets out of mm-hmm. the body. Okay, yeah. good. That's... What I thought I remembered. <laughs> Megan's now laughing again. All right. Anything else that you read? No, not that won't bore people to death. <laughs> uh, no, I think no, so. So kidding. I think it was very important to remember that we're talking with CYP450. We're talking about phase one metabolism, not phase mm-hmm. two metabolism. I think there's also some articles that we read about phase two metabolism where there are probably drug-drug interactions as well that might be important, but mm-hmm. I think that was outside the scope of, of this discussion. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's go ahead and get your high-yield comments or, or closing arguments, so to speak. Uh, Megan, what's your last word on this topic? Um, just to remember about the CYP450 when you're um, giving people meds and... Um, yeah, just to make sure to um, remember the drug-drug interactions. I like it. Chloe, what's your take home? Um, I just really enjoyed the the physiology behind it as well. Just learning like how something that isn't like super that you don't learn about a ton. Like, cause I didn't have an ex- like a super extensive knowledge on this. Mm-hmm. Um, like how much it affects everything. Like I was. I was surprised at how much I didn't know, <laughs> you know, so. I, I don't know that this, is, so so I think your degree taught you the principles. Yeah. That um, are involved in kinetics. Yeah, like more right? of the basics of it rather than like the big picture stuff. Yeah, you know? how it might be affected in this mm-hmm. setting. I like the both of those a lot. So I, I think um, what I'm left with is that this this history mm-hmm. was so rich to me. Mm-hmm. I, I I felt like it took me back to I don't know middle school or junior mm-hmm. high or maybe my first biology class that talked about Watson and Crick with DNA. Yeah. I think Watson's name actually showed up in one of the papers mm-hmm. we did, and I don't know if it was the same Watson or not. I thought it might be because they were talking about looking at uh, nuclear cytosol or something along those lines and. Um, realizing that when some of these papers were written, they hadn't figured out the structure of DNA yet. Mm-hmm. They, they were still naming things like Golgi bodies and figuring out that ribosomes were on those and that, yeah. hey, suddenly these drugs are affecting these things that we're doing. And, hey, here's how they're affecting it. And what does it mean? Right, they, they, we, I, I found myself not taking for granted um, these 
amazing discoveries that took so many different mm-hmm. people to kind of help further the science and doing it so many different ways, right? We think about induction and go, oh yeah, well, we know about induction. But the, the number of different ways that I, induction was looked at, I think there were 15 papers in our, in our folder that we looked at that all had some different variation of, hey, we noticed induction in this pathway. We noticed induction in this pathway. pathway. My favorite, of course, is sleeping rats. But <laughs> just, just this, just this um, walk down memory lane of like these statements, you know, we were able to get centrifuges that allowed people to look at different parts of the cells. Well, that's no small thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then, not only that, then you have to identify detergents that can wash them. And then you have to figure out what is it you're looking at. And maybe the first step is shooting light through it and noticing that you have something you're shooting light through. And not until the 80s when you're maybe late 70s, early 80s, I think mm-hmm. we had some uh, articles that talked about that, that you're actually able to clone this and then start looking at the cloned items, right? And, and even one of the articles we ta- looked at talked about cloning uh, a CYP enzyme from Pseudomonas that grew on terpene and something else. And I was like, who thinks of <laughs> growing CYP enzymes? Or put, I, I don't even know. How do you even do that? I, I don't even know how you do that. So, so to me, to me um, there's nothing greater than curiosity. And not only was my curiosity... Um, fully engaged in this, uh, in, in reading the articles about CYP450. But it seemed like the curiosity of everybody mm-hmm. that was chasing these things was was over the top, right? It felt like there was this golden age of biology, <laughs> of cell biology, where uh, like there were a hundred different groups making all these different discoveries. And, and uh, anyway, I've, I've now gone on like seven minutes talking about how much I was geeking out on this and if we had a camera you would see uh, Megan and Chloe (laughs) looking at each other laughing at me so um, totally totally would deserve that so I love the curiosity and I think the other takeaway I would add to this is there are very specific drug-drug interactions that will come up quite a bit in your exams and I think carbamazepine is probably an important molecule to understand in terms of drug-drug interactions I think it's probably also important to understand how substrates can affect, comp- like substrate site competition, right, can affect the, the metabolism. I think it's important to understand that there's a difference between substrate site activity and induction, which leads to increased amounts of substrate sites, right? So induction is a little bit longer process, whereas uh, because it requires the uh, uh, genetic encoding or genetic uh, um, activity and then protein building, whereas the competition is simply kinetic-based, right? It's the amount of molecules you have running around in the space fighting for the one spot. Mm-hmm. So so I think those are two really important things to understand, and when, when you start understanding that, I think it also makes a lot more sense uh, about uh, the drug-drug interactions, at least at this site. So I'm excited for the future, and I think there's a lot more to figure out. And I really appreciate the two of you joining me. Thank you. Thank you. On that note, guys, team out.